turn with me to the book of Acts. We're going to take communion together at the very end of the service. So we'll get there, just not right now. Uh, turn with me to the book of Acts, and my hope is that we can um, walk through these 10 verses together uh, in an informative way, but also in a um, timely manner so that we can spend time taking communion and praying together and then um, leaving much time to enjoy fellowship together over a meal at the end of all of this. Um, but just kind of a preface of this Sunday and hopefully uh, what we want to see happening in weeks and years and months to come um, is on the first Sunday of the month, every Sunday, every month, we have a meal together and I commonly refer to it as a church family meal because we're coming together making various foods and bringing them together, eating together, spending time together. Um, certainly we do that in co- our community group right now, but as we grow as a church and have multiple community groups, that's something we're going to lack as a whole body of believers. And so we come together for this meal to celebrate together, the fellowship together, and just talk to people that we may not talk to as easily or as common or as regular as others, and just get to know each other in a different way. Um, the other reason is because... And the book of Acts, as we've seen already, and we'll continue to see, is that the, the, the early church, the early believers, the early Christians, however you want to refer to them, they commonly ate together in homes and things of the such. When they gathered on the Lord's Day, they took communion together. And quite often, uh, there was this correlation between what they call love feasts and taking communion. Um, and so they would eat together and then they would take communion together. Not always, but sometimes. And so that's why we then... Uh, accompanied our family meal with communion. And so to make that even more enjoyable, I think what we're trying to do now is to bring the children in on that. One, it gives all of our nursery workers and whatnot a break. Uh, Two, it's not an every week thing. So for uh, parents, it gives them an opportunity to worship with their entire family that week. And then three, it just helps us do things like we just did together on a more regular basis. And so with all that being said, That's why we're doing what we're doing this morning in the way we do it. And I just want to be a little more clear on some of those things. But in the book of Acts, chapter 3 is where we're going to be. And we're really going to see a very very similar story to that of Christ healing the lame man that we talked about before we sang together. But before we get into any of these verses or any of those things, I want us to take some time and just pray together. Uh, to prep our hearts for what God may have, but also just to thank Him for the ability to praise Him already today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love You. We thank You. God, we pray now as we move forward into a time of worshiping You through the, the reading and preaching and the listening of Your Word being preached, God, that we would be active participants in this, that we would learn much more about You, God, that we would understand applications and implications from it, But at the end of it, Father, that we would ultimately rest in the work of your Son and what you have accomplished for us, not only in saving us, but in calling us to serve with you and alongside you. And so, Father, prepare our hearts and mind now as you have been and continue to do so. God, take me and hide me behind your words and your words alone. In your Son's holy name, amen. So the book of Acts, chapter 3, verse 1 through 10, we're going to read it all together. And it says this. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called Beautiful Gate, to ask alms 
of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at them, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised up him, him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple and asking alms. They were filled with the wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Book of Acts. Um, A commentary I read on this uh, made this statement. It's not original to me, uh, but it stood out to me. And this statement is that in Acts, the miracles were always to the service of the word, confirming God's presence in the spread of the gospel as a sign that enabled faith. Nowhere is that more evident than in this healing of the blind beggar. Essentially, what he's getting at here in this statement is that miracles and signs and wonders, much like we've already seen in the day of Pentecost and much like we will see later even in the life of Paul, the reason these miracles exist are not to um, prove that God exists, but to accompany the Word of God, to come before or come after, to accompany the Word of God so that the ones hearing the Word of God could be, have their hearts softened to the realities of who Christ was. And in this morning's text and sermon, we're going to stop right before that happens. Because we're going to see a response of the blind man. We're going to see a response of the people. But we don't see anything about the word of God explained, the moment of the uh, miracle explained. And we really don't see a moment of true belief. We just see a response to a miraculous moment. And next week as we gather together and we finish up chapter 3, we're certainly going to see Peter's sermon in response to this moment. We're going to see a deeper response of the people. And we're going to see all of those amazing and wonderful things. But this morning, we're going to look at what opened the opportunity for Peter and John to preach, to preach the gospel openly and publicly on the hour of prayer at the ninth hour. So... With all that being said, let's look at chapter at verse 1 through verse 2 together. Since now Peter and John, Peter is the one that we've seen so far. He's the one that on the day of Pentecost, he's the one that stood up and preached and thousands were saved. He's the one that stood before the disciples and has gathered them and said, look, we're going to have to replace Judas, because of his sinful rebellion against God and him hanging himself, we got to replace him with a twelfth disciple, as Scripture has foretold. Peter is the one that, in some way or another, has naturally become the leader of these, this group of disciples, be the twelve or be the seventy, or possibly even the church overall in Jerusalem at the moment. Peter, and then you have John, which is... Um, the, the, there's an argument or discussion of which John this is talking about. There's really two Johns in the New Testament that we know of commonly, but most likely it's John the disciple. 
John Zebedee, I believe. He's most likely this John. Why? Because the other John has not been mentioned anywhere else in the book of Acts, okay? And so this is an historical account. So it makes sense that he would be talking about this same John, the John that on the day of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, he's the one that in, in the book of John, he actually says that he beats, he beats Peter in a foot race, kind of providing his dominance over Peter in some way or another. That he's the one that ran to the tomb, enters the tomb first. John is the one that we know of Peter and John and James being the inner three of the 12 disciples that was with Christ on the moment of his betrayal in the Garden of Gethsemane. These two guys, common leaders within the church of Jerusalem, were going to the temple on the hour of prayer on the ninth hour. So they're going to pray on this, this common time that Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem would pray. The Judean, the Israelites, they would gather these times and they would pray in the temple. They would even make sacrifices in the temple in this time period. Now, is Peter and John still holding to some traditions and customs that they were taught through Christ and through their religious background? That's possible. They've only been believers in Christ for just a little bit, little bit of time. They're still working some things out. Are they still making sacrifices, gathering in the temple for that portion of it? Possibly. Or it could be that they're gathering here because this is where a group of people are gathered for the, the proclamation of God's word, just not in the way in which they come to understand it through Christ. I'm not sure which one's the case, but we certainly see an opportunity arises through this healing of this lame man for Christ to be preached. And they jump on that opportunity. He goes on. So these two guys, they're going up to the temple for this time of prayer in the evening. It says, a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of entering, those entering the temple. So we have Peter and John going to the temple, but we also have this lame guy that by lame, as I was talking to one of my kids about yesterday, not lame in the sense of Micah's lame. You're not lame. I'm just a perfect example. Uh, not lame is in the sense of I'm definitely lame, uh, but in the sense of he was unable to walk, right? Uh, words, definitions change over time. And so he's lame as in not able to walk. So he's being carried and he's laid at this gate daily. This gate called the beautiful gate. We don't know which gate it is. There's two options of which gate this is in the temple. Uh, that's not significant. What's significant, he's laid at this gate every day. And he's laid at this gate for the purpose of asking alms in, of those entering the temple. Essentially, he's sitting at the temple, at the gate of the temple, and he's asking religious people to give him money in his time of need. Um, but the other issue here is due to his elements ailments and due to his just issues physical issues he wouldn't have been able to enter into the temple because of the jewish law and so he sits at this gate day in and day out of his life asking people to provide financially for him unable to enter into the temple himself sitting at the gate week in and week out day in and day out Desiring to worship God. See, the reality, though, as another, another individual has stated, at this time of his healing, not only had he received this physical healing, but he had found spiritual acceptance as well. 
For the first time, he was deemed worthy to enter into the house of worship. This theme repeats in the book of Acts. Those who are rejected as unworthy for worship and in an old religion of Israel has found acceptance in the name of Jesus, rather a lame beggar or Ethiopian eunuch or a woman or a Gentile. See, this is an opening story of what's coming out in the book of Acts, and that is that through Christ, those who are religiously rejected, those who are not able to be a part of worship, those who are not fitting into this cast or mold can find salvation in Christ. See, this lame beggar, day in and day out, sitting at this gate, asking alms of people, not only screams his physical issues, but the spiritual problem he had as well. And so, we get into verse 3. Seeing Peter and John, we don't know if they know Peter or if they know John, but they see these two guys. He sees these two guys about to go into the temple, and he asks to receive alms. He just, he sees them. They're walking in the temple. They, they're, they're, they're devoted followers of God. They're gathering in the ninth hour to pray to God, to make sacrifices. Whatever's going on in the temple, this guy's not, not completely aware of because he hasn't ever been. But these people are gathering. They must be good people. So he looks at them and he just asks them very pain, plainly for money, for provisions, because he is unable to work and provide for himself. It says, so Peter directed his gaze at him. As did John, and said, look at us. So, this is the moment where Peter and John stop. And it's not a, it's not a conversation, and he's like, look at me. It's a, he looks at him intently. I'm sorry I'm using you as an example again, but it's just happening. He looks at him intently, and he's staring at him. He's staring him down, and he says, look at us. Look at me. He's getting his attention. And in a moment like this, a common practice would be that they, there would be this miraculous gift and financial provisions for a man in that. Like he was getting his attention. He wasn't just throwing a few, a little bit of money into a cup as he walked on by. He stopped for a reason. He got his attention. There was something big about to happen. So this guy's probably getting pumped about what he's about to receive. Some kind of financial provisions that would, would change his life in some way or another. This, this financial gift that would change just how he lived his life altogether. Maybe he wouldn't have to come back to the temple tomorrow because of how much money these two guys have. We don't know what crosses his mind here, but we certainly know that the way that Peter and John does this, according to verse 5, is significant. Because this guy pays attention to him and he expecting to receive something from them. So I want you to kind of get in the, the shoes of this man and really understand where he's coming from. He's rejected in society. He's rejected in religious practices. He sits at the temple gate day in and day out asking other people to give to him because he has no way of providing for himself. He certainly has people willing to drop him off there every day. But, and that's an amazing thing in and of itself, much like that in Luke. But much of his life, it's difficult and hard and seemingly hopeless. But he meets these two guys that make a big deal about what they're about to say. And so listen to the words that Peter and John says to him. And Peter says, I have no silver and gold. 
but what I do have, I give to you. I don't know if Peter was dramatic and he took these pauses when he spoke. I don't know if he stuttered. I don't know anything about Peter. I just know that this is what he says. But imagine the thought process of this guy before Peter does what he's about to do. This thought process of this guy is, I got your attention. Uh, You're looking at me. I'm looking at you. You're focusing on me. I'm focusing on you. And he utters the words, I have no silver and I have no gold, but what I have to give you. But I have to do, I have I give to you. So this guy sitting on the ground, hopeless and despair, gets this guy's attention. The guy gets his attention. He says, you know, he's waiting for this big moment. And the big moment is crescendoed with, I have nothing to give you. I have no silver. I have no gold. I have nothing. Now, Peter's not lying here. So it's not like as if he's got gold and silver in his pocket. And he's doing this for dramatic effect as it tells the man to stand up and walk. He has no silver. He has no gold. Um, why is he traveling with no money? Does he have no money? Does he have no occupation? Who knows? We know that 3,000 souls have been saved within the Jerusalem area, and we know that this is a new caste system for them. So most likely Peter is focusing on the ministry and being provided to by the church in some way or another, but probably not to the extent to where he carries money around. He's just provided for it because this is a different culture and time where he would have ate and he would have enjoyed fellowship with people in homes and all of those things. So Peter and John's not lying when they say they don't have this. They literally don't have gold. They don't have silver. We don't know why, but we know that they don't. But what does he say to him that's so significant? He says, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Flip over back with me to Luke chapter 5. Verse 24, Luke 5, 24. says, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. I want to just compare these things. Because what Jesus says and authority, and the reason why he says it's to prove he has authority to forgive sins. He looks at the lame man laying on his bed on the floor in the middle of this dude's house where the roof is gone. He looks at him and he says, rise, pick up your bed and go home. They were unable to get into the room. Why? Because the room is so packed. But I guarantee that when he picked up his bed, he rolled it up and he put it on his shoulder and he walked out the door. There was nobody in his way. But look at how he says it. He doesn't say in the name of. Jesus says, rise, pick up your mat, and go home. What does Peter say? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This wasn't in Peter's strength or ability. Or he wasn't a superhero able to heal individuals of their elements. He was a man of God speaking on behalf of God in a moment where God desired not only to heal a lame man, but to save a lame man's soul. And so when he speaks, he doesn't say in the name of Peter, he doesn't say in the name of John, he says in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And that in and of itself, this man knew. This crucified man, 
this man that was caught blaspheming, this man that was nailed to a cross, why in his name would you tell me to rise up and walk? But we don't see a moment where the man even has the opportunity to, to, compl- to contemplate what's going on. It says that Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. There wasn't a moment here where this lame man has the opportunity to believe in Jesus or trust that Peter would heal him. It was a moment where Peter says what he has to say, and then he grabs the man by the right hand and he raises him up. See, in Matthew, in Luke 5, what we also see is in that context, it doesn't say by your faith you've been saved. What does it say? By the faith of your friends you have been healed. See, right here is a very very similar story. But how does the guy respond afterwards? And leaping up, he stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. It says, and he leaping up, he stood and began to walk. I have another reference for us this morning. You don't have to turn with me unless you just want to. But it's in Isaiah 35. It's in Isaiah 35. And what we're going to see, this is a moment in which the prophet was talking about something that was to come, something that was to happen. We're going to specifically land in verse 36. But let's just read a few things in verses 1 and 2. It says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the carcass. It shall be blossom abundantly. The rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Shuren. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Verse 3, Shrink. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have anxious hearts, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then your eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer And the tongue of the mute sing for joy. The waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become pool and the thirsty ground should have water. The haunt of jackals where they lie down. The grass become, become reeds of rush. I'm going to stop there. Verse 6. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. The same guy leaps in the same phrase here as this deer. You probably look like a deer leaping. Have you ever seen, um, not to get sidetracked here, but I'm certainly going to. Have uh, you ever seen like a calf born or like a giraffe born? Just so my, make my, my wife and Molly happy in my reference here. Um, when they first learn how to walk, they like I saw this video of this giraffe that he learned how to walk and he just starts jumping around. Because I really don't know how to use their legs yet. They can stand up, but they don't have this idea of how to bend their legs. This guy has the same problem. He's been born lame, unable to walk. He lifts up Peter's beside him, holding his hand. 
But he leaps with joy. He leaps with excitement. Most likely not because he knows he's leaping, because this is his response to it. And the reason why this is his response to it is because it's a continuation of the prophecy found in Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 is certainly talking about that of the day of Christ. But what we see in that, looking forward into the moment of Acts chapter 3, is the continuation of the work in which God had done through Christ into the disciples. That the name of Christ was continuing to go forward. The works of Christ was continuing to go forward. And in this, we see a moment, as I said earlier, that this man is healed so that it can soften his heart to the news of the word of God. But not only his heart. Let's look at verse 9 and 10. It says, all the people saw him walking and praising God. So this guy, he's pumped. He's, he's not like just walking into church, just nonchalantly as if, you know, nothing big has happened in his life. He's excited. He's running. He's jumping. He's praising God. He's singing to God. He's glorifying God. Not only is he able to walk, but he's entering the temple of God for the very first time in his life, most likely around the age of 40, according to some references in the book of Acts. The people saw that. Verse 10, it says, And they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. They knew him. This guy, he sat there daily asking for money, begging for money. They recognized him. They maybe had got to the point in their life where they didn't recognize him as much or they walked by very quickly so they wouldn't have to provide for him. We don't know their hearts. We don't know their circumstances. But when they saw him praising and walking and all of those things in the temple, they certainly knew that is who that was. And because of that, it says, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. I would argue that the healing of this lame man was not by the faith of the lame man, but by the will of God. The will of God to soften the heart of the lame man, but also to soften the hearts of the men and the women within that temple that Peter will speak to, starting in verse 11 all the way through verse 26. And I want to read what 26 tells us. This is how Peter ends his sermon. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to the first to bless you by turning everyone from, his, from your wickedness. Peter is preaching the gospel boldly. And I'm getting ahead of myself here. It's okay. In verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming against Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day, for it had already been evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men coming uh, came to about 5,000. I'm going to touch on this more when we get there. Because uh, I have not studied this as well as I should have already, um, but coming came to about five thousand. So I would argue that the number was three thousand, and there were some that were getting saved daily, 
And after this, there's about 5,000 that had been saved since the beginning of Acts. But a point I'm making, regardless if it's 5,000 more or 2,000 more or somewhere in between, is very simply is that God certainly began the work of saving lost souls by this miraculous work that only God could do that was in the name of Christ, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, to soften the hearts of the people of God that he desired to save. Now, how does this apply to us? Because certainly God is a God that can do what God desires to do. God can heal. God can do the work that he desires to do, however that may look. But in this room, unless there's something I don't know about some of you, uh, which is very possible, I've never walked up to someone and said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, stand up and walk, and then they walked. I have certainly prayed over people in which God healed through other means or God healed in other ways, but it doesn't seem like I have this same ability, right? Or it doesn't seem like God has used this similar practice in my own life, and possibly you feel the same way. It's why don't we see similar things going on? And that's a long conversation that I'm not trying to get into at this moment, but I think a very basic application for us in this is that instead of looking at this lame man is to telling him about Jesus and telling him about how he'd been, been crucified and laid in the tomb, but he, he rose again. And in doing all of that, he conquered sin, death, and the grave. And he, he's the savior of the world. You should trust in this crucified man. Instead of presenting this basic gospel presentation to this layman, just chilling on the ground like he had been doing for 40-something years approximately. Instead of going that approach, what does he do? He does the same thing that Jesus did, except for backwards. Because what Jesus did with the lame man, he looked at him and said, your sins are forgiven. And then he begins to be questioned by the Pharisees. And he asked the question very simply, is, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to stand up and walk? And so Jesus had the authority to say your sins are forgiven. And so he could start there and then prove himself to be true by the physical interaction of healing a lame man. Peter and John does not have that ability. You and I do not have the ability to look at someone in our lives and say, your sins have been forgiven. But we certainly have the ability and the means of leveraging what we have in our life in such a way that it can be used to soften the hearts of those around us to proclaim the gospel to them so that they can believe on the truth of who Christ is. So I'm not going to take and run with that way too far, but very simply is the application in my mind, and you may be finding more than I do in this, is are we taking obvious opportunities within our life to leverage our occupations, our homes, our possessions, our families, our hobbies? Are we leveraging those things to open up opportunities to proclaim the gospel to people so that it would soften their hearts? and that they would be prepared and ready to receive what Christ may have for them. And in that, do we have faith that God will actually use those moments to open up the opportunity for us to save us, save them? See, the reality here is Peter said what Peter said, but certainly there was a faith aspect for Peter putting his hand down and picking this man up. He said what he said, and he believed God was going to heal that man in that moment. There's no doubt in my mind. Oh, we 
doing the same thing in our lives? Are we leveraging circumstances to soften the hearts of people and truly believing that God can use that in some way so to open up the door to proclaim the gospel to them in such a loving and compassionate way that it will just hit home just different than one other time for them? We end every week with Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And before we sing together, I'm just going to reference that and say that we're called to go and to be sent to be people that proclaim the gospel, make disciples. But as we say often here at Redeemer, it doesn't stop there. It's also to rest in the authority of Christ to do the saving of souls and discipling people through our actions. So very pointedly, my question is simply this before we sing and then we take communion together. Is Are we being intentional in leveraging the things around us in our lives to build relationships and opportunities for softened hearts to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because I would argue that there's a time and place for all forms of evangelism, but I would argue heavily that we have lived in a Christian society that has tried to beat the gospel over the heads of people and what it has done, and it has turned them away from the truth of the gospel. When scripture is clear, the greatest commandment is love God, the second is love our neighbor as ourselves, and I would argue that as we get to know individuals, as we get to build relationships with people, as we get to move into those things and open up opportunities to proclaim the gospel in such a way that people will hear it. Not always, but often. So I would encourage us all to leverage those opportunities around us today. Let's pray together as we, Troy comes and sings us in this last song.